You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Scene of the Crime, The Murder in My Family, Malice, Missing Persons, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 4, Fawn Cox. It was 1989. That summer, Fawn Cox was 16 years old and living with her family in northeast Kansas City, Missouri, at their home, which was at 4640 East 9th Street. In the fall, Fawn was going to be a junior at Northwest Senior High School. On the night of July 25th, a Tuesday, Fawn's mom and sister picked her up from her job at the concession stand at Worlds of Fun Amusement Park. When they got home, Fawn went straight to bed around 11. Her dad was already asleep. It was a hot, muggy midsummer night in Kansas City, and the family home didn't have central air. It was a small house, and the single room on the upstairs level had been divided by a makeshift wall into two bedrooms, one for Fawn and one for her sister Amber, who was just one year younger. Amber was on an in-house babysitting job for another family all week, so Fawn was the only person sleeping on the upstairs level of the home. Her parents, John and Beverly, slept in a room on the main level with an in-window air conditioning unit right above their bed cooling things off. Fawn's youngest sister, 12-year-old Felissa, opted to sleep on the couch on the main level where the AC unit provided some relief from the heat. Fawn's room only had a large fan propped in one of the two side-by-side windows. The only working bathroom in the house was at the top of the stairs, but after going to bed that night, none of the family members used it at all during the night. On Wednesday morning, the alarm clock in Fawn's room started blaring at 9.30 a.m. Fawn had set the alarm for this time so she could get up and go to work, but the alarm kept beeping and no one shut it off. Felissa and Fawn's mom Beverly climbed the stairs to wake the sleeping teen, whom they assumed was just overtired. Fawn was still in bed, but she wasn't sleeping in. Fawn was dead. Her sister's nightgown was wrapped tightly around her throat. She was dressed in a nightshirt and bathing suit top left over from the day before, but she was nude from the waist down. She had virtually no visible external wounds on her body. Felissa told the media years later, quote, I went over to shake her, come on, get up, but she had been gone for a while. The hysterical family called the police. The autopsy on Fawn showed that she died of strangulation and she had been sexually assaulted. Her death was declared a homicide and assigned to the Kansas City PD's murder squad. Per the Kansas City Star, Fawn was born and raised in northeast Kansas City by parents John and Beverly. She was outgoing and popular and spent a lot of time with her Christian youth group. According to her parents, they closely monitored her social life, and they only let her date boys they knew and trusted. 
Fawn was not the rebellious type, and she got along with her parents and her sisters. She was not the type to sneak out or lie about her activities. Fawn had just gotten her learner's permit three days earlier and was excited about getting her driving license. She was saving money from her job to purchase her class ring. People who knew her said that she was sweet, kind, a good girl. Fawn had been killed in her bed while three family members, both parents and her younger sister, were asleep downstairs. No one had heard a thing. There was no evidence of a struggle in her room. As police said, nothing had been tossed about. The only hint that something had happened in the night was the family dog had been acting agitated, but since she was pregnant, the Coxes assumed that the poodle was acting strangely because of her condition. There was no forced entry to the home, and investigators did not believe that whoever killed Fawn entered the house through traditional entryways, which were doors in the front and back. And they did not believe that Fawn had let a boy into the home and sneaked him past her family and into her room. Fawn was not that kind of girl. Rather, they came to believe that her killer had climbed up onto the porch roof outside her room and came in through the wide-open window to her upstairs bedroom. When police arrived and began investigating the scene, they observed a pickup truck parked behind the house right next to the small porch housing the back door. There was also an unused dump truck bed parked there next to the pickup. This led investigators to surmise that the killer had climbed atop one of the trucks to mount the porch roof and gain access to Fawn's bedroom directly above. The backyard was not lit and would have been quite dark that night. No one would likely have noticed someone slipping into or out of the window. So it seemed to investigators that the killer was almost certainly someone who knew Fawn. The chances that a random intruder would select her bedroom and get lucky enough that no one else was upstairs in the house were minute. Since Amber's room was divided off from Fawn's, but would almost certainly have picked up any noise, it seemed likely that someone had known that Amber was not home that night. And investigators believed the killer had gotten lucky that the sound of the AC unit and fans being used to cool sleeping conditions had provided a sound cover for the murder of Fawn. Or... The killer had known that as well. In a strange coincidence, another student at Northwest Senior High School was killed the same week as Fawn. 14-year-old William Smith Jr. was shot to death on Tuesday night in his home. Police arrested a 15-year-old for this crime, which was deemed to be over a personal matter. But it was not thought that this case was related to Fawn's. No one could figure out why Fawn was killed. She was a hardworking student, a good girl, she had a job was close with her family, did not do drugs, was not sexually active, and volunteered and participated in Christian youth activities at her church, the Sheffield Assembly of God. Initially, police believed that the intruder might have intended to burglarize the Cox home. Several things were missing from Fawn's room, described in contemporary reports as, quote, electronic devices. Her sister posted on WebSleuths that some electronic items were stolen, including a stereo, a boombox, and a Nintendo. Crime scene photos show a stereo cover that had been dropped or thrown and was sitting on the porch roof right outside Fawn's window. And a neighbor reported seeing a blonde white male in his teens, wearing jeans and no shirt, running north between the houses, carrying a pillowcase full of something. And another witness, who has not been named, came forward and seemed to know about the crime and named some names. He maintained that he had been in the presence of two juveniles who had gone into Fawn's room and stolen the missing items. Soon, police began to focus on a group of suspects. 
The theory of investigators was that the group had broken in to rob the house and Fawn had been collateral damage. Perhaps she had woken up and caught them in the act. They arrested a trio of local young men. Christopher A. Yates, age 18, was the first to be arrested. His sister went to high school with Fawn, and he was rumored to have been involved in her death. Yates was charged with second-degree murder. A second 18-year-old, Timothy E. Roberts, was charged with first-degree murder. He was not able to post the bond of $100,000 required to bail out, so he remained in jail. Then, a 16-year-old boy whose name was not initially released because he was a juvenile was arrested as well and placed in juvenile detention. The 16-year-old was held for five months until his 17th birthday. Investigators had not been able to interview him because he was a juvenile and protected. But as soon as his birthday came around, juvenile authorities certified him as an adult, and he was charged as one and his identity published. Leonard C. Crucis was arraigned on murder and burglary charges one day after becoming an adult in the eyes of Missouri law. He was held on $50,000 bond. Police sat him down to question him, but he refused to provide any helpful information. By late December 1989, Timothy Roberts had been indicted by a Jackson County grand jury on charges of murder, rape, sodomy, and burglary. The charges against Christopher Yates and Leonard Crucis had been downgraded to burglary, and they were released. So, it looked like police had their man, right? Not so fast. Fawn was killed in 1989. The first crime investigation to utilize DNA was in 1986, and DNA use was slowly becoming more widely accepted. But DNA extraction techniques were not nearly as sophisticated as they are today. The genetic material pinpointed in 1989 was not very specific. DNA analysis was more like blood typing. It could show similarities, but lacked the level of detail available using today's techniques. The Kansas City Star reported at the time that DNA was a new criminal tool similar to fingerprinting because the sequences of DNA are unique to each person. All it could be used for from an evidentiary standpoint was to rule people out. DNA was collected in Fawn's case from a semen stain left on her bedsheets. Tim Roberts, who was acquainted with Fawn and had been named by the witness, agreed to provide blood and hair samples. This, despite the fact that an arm and head injury he had at the time, would almost certainly have ruled him out in the attack on Fawn, according to his attorney. The blood sample provided by Roberts was compared to the sample taken from the semen stain. As reported in the Kansas City Star, quote, Preliminary testing by the regional crime lab showed that Roberts and Cox's attacker shared some common characteristics, but further DNA testing at the FBI lab in Washington failed to find any further similarities, end quote. Assistant DA Delaney Dean told the Star that the FBI lab reported to her that the semen specimen contained too few sperm to accurately analyze the DNA. Because the DNA testing was deemed inconclusive as to whether the sample taken from Roberts was a match to the sample from the killer, prosecutors were forced to drop charges against Roberts on April 23, 1990. Assistant DA Delaney Dean said, quote, We've got no evidence. The only thing we had was the blood and semen analysis. Because the entire case against Roberts hinged on there being a match between the semen sample and Roberts' own blood sample, the case fell apart when that match failed to be borne out in the lab. Even though prosecutors still asserted that the DNA analysis did not conclusively prove that Roberts was not the attacker. But then, the key witness who had named the three young men recanted, and the entire case fell apart. Roberts was released after spending eight months in Jackson County Jail for a murder he did not commit. 
Roberts was the first person in Jackson County, Missouri, to be cleared through the use of genetic testing, even though it was more that the crude DNA evidence was not conclusive than that it excluded him. Police were back to square one. The three suspects had blamed the murder on a local gang of thugs known as the Ninth Street Dogs, D-A-W-G-S, and members of this gang were looked at and were the subject of local rumor for years, but there was never any evidence of their involvement. The Kansas City Police Department maintained evidentiary items collected at the crime scene and retested them regularly in the event that advances in DNA could provide answers. It was revealed recently that one of the pieces of evidence found in Fawn's room was a used-looking military-style fatigue hat with an airborne logo that was believed to have belonged to the killer. But none of this led anywhere. Kansas City homicide detectives continued to work the case and brief the family about their progress routinely. But there really wasn't anything to report. And to add insult to injury, the Cox family home where Fawn had been killed burned to the ground a few years after her death. Frustrated beyond measure, the Cox family announced in 2000 that it was increasing the reward for information in Fawn's case by contributing $3,000 to the Crime Stoppers Reward Fund. According to a recent media release by the Kansas City Police Department, in the first decade of the 2000s, KCPD crime lab scientists developed an updated individual male DNA profile from the seminal fluid sample that was collected and stored in 1989. They uploaded this to the National CODIS database, but there was no match. Kansas City Police Captain Benjamin Caldwell, who was kind enough to answer some of my questions in this case, told the Kansas City Star in 2017, quote, Whoever killed her either has never been charged with a felony or is no longer alive. People don't start killing and then quit and stay out of trouble as if they fell off the face of the earth. But as we've seen in some of my earlier cases this podcast has covered, that is exactly what sometimes happens. Would Captain Caldwell prove to be correct in Fawn's case? Using the updated DNA sample in 2017, the KCPD re-interviewed the suspects that had been arrested in 1989, now all grown men. They tested their DNA against this new profile, and there was no match. Tim Roberts had spent eight months in jail for a crime he didn't commit, and he was 100% exonerated by the DNA testing. Fawn's sister Amber published a letter to her sister's killer in the Kansas City Star on May 20, 2018. It read, in part, quote, To my sister's killer, you know who you are. I just pray that you have the conscience to come forward and own up to what you did that night. My family could heal if you would admit to your crime. You took one life already, but you could save others if you just came forward. You don't know how hard it is to live life in complete fear of everything. You took away my sister, but you also took away my ability to live life feeling safe, unafraid, and independent. My spirit died when my sister died. Fawn Cox's case was ice cold. Police had run out of investigative avenues, and tips had dried up. In 2019, the Cox family put up a billboard to remind the public that this case was still open and the reward available. The reward fund was now up to $15,000. The KCPD was getting pressure from the public and the family to use the DNA left behind by the killer to commission a computer-generated image of the suspect, the process known as phenotyping. John Cox said at the time, quote, Never dreamed that they'd be able to do it. It was science fiction that anything like this can happen. And it didn't happen. The process was expensive, and Kansas City PD did not have the funds to pay for a private lab to do the service. 
Fully aware of the developments in the field of genetic genealogy and its use in solving cold cases, the Coxes began pushing the Kansas City PD to find a way to fund genetic genealogy research in Fawn's case, now 30 years old. Then, having raised funds through a public fund drive, the Coxes offered to pay for the research themselves. But they were told that the police department could not accept these funds because it was not fair to families of murder victims who did not have similar resources. And the Kansas City PD did not have the money to pay for it. The problem was solved when Operation Legend, named after a four-year-old boy who was shot and killed in Kansas City in 2020, arrived in town. The FBI was tasked with providing federal resources to help local law enforcement agencies solve violent crimes. And the operation kicked off in Kansas City, which had seen a recent uptick in violent crime, such as the shooting that killed Little Legend. In fact, Kansas City was experiencing the highest homicide rate in the city's history. While they had the attention of the FBI, Kansas City detectives proposed using federal funds and resources to conduct the testing in Fawn's case. It's not clear exactly what the arrangement was, but the FBI agreed to assist the KCPD, and the genetic genealogy testing was completed in 2020. I don't have the specific information on the exact familial relationships identified by the genetic genealogist on Fawn's case, since the FBI conducted the testing and they won't discuss their methods. But I do know that the investigators were extremely shocked at the results because the killer was someone in Fawn's own family tree. John Cox's nephew, Fawn's first cousin, Donald Lee Cox Jr., was her killer. Don Jr. was deceased. He died of a drug overdose on July 30, 2006, 17 years after he killed Fawn. As always, detectives seeking to close Fawn's case needed to prove that the genealogical information was correct by comparing DNA from Don Jr. to the DNA from the crime scene. Since Don Jr. was dead, this would be difficult. But detectives got a stroke of luck. When Don Jr. had died, the circumstances of his death were considered suspicious. The medical examiner investigating the death had taken a blood sample from Don Jr.'s body. Even though his death was later determined to have been from an overdose, and not to be the result of any foul play, the blood sample had been retained. Kansas City Crime Lab staff utilized this blood sample to extract Don Jr.'s DNA and compared it to the DNA profile from the seminal fluid found on the body of his first cousin, Fawn. It was a perfect match. Captain Caldwell told me that investigators are having a hard time determining Don Cox Jr.'s record because he traveled and lived all over the country. What I was able to put together was the following. Bear with me as this gets a little complicated. Donald Cox Jr. was born on May 25, 1968, in Kansas City. When he killed Fawn, he was 21 years old. He was 5 foot 9 inches and 165 pounds with green eyes and brown hair. He had two brothers and three sisters. The first arrest I could find was a bust on January 27, 1987, in Jackson County for a second-degree burglary, a felony, where he was found or pled guilty on March 5th of that year. He was sentenced to confinement for three or four years. It's not really clear which. Then he was arrested on March 11, 1987, for failure to appear. He was incarcerated in the Missouri State Penitentiary on that date. Then, it's not clear what happened, but he was paroled on March 2, 1989. He was incarcerated again on September 13, 1989, and then was placed on house arrest on April 18, 1990. Finally, he was incarcerated again on May 16th of that year and paroled on September 21st. 
He was off probation by February 13, 1991. What does all this mean? It means that Don Jr. was a prodigious, if petty, criminal, and that he was out on probation when he killed Fawn. It is still unknown to this day whether Don Jr. was the man seen running with the pillowcase full of stuff. Captain Caldwell told me that Don Jr. was never on police radar. He said in an email to me, quote, As far as his suspected unsolved crimes, I do not know of any at this time, but I would suspect he has many unidentified sexual assault victims. We are working to identify any unsolved sexual assaults he may have committed. Fawn's parents and sisters were gathered in Kansas City on November 10, 2020, and told the bittersweet news. Fawn's case was solved, and police finally knew the identity of the killer after 31 years. But the killer was a member of the family. The murder that had been so devastating to the Cox family would continue to devastate them now all over again. Don Cox Sr. and his wife Dana were still alive to hear this terrible news about their son. They had mourned his untimely death in 2006, and now they had to mourn his murder of their niece. Felissa said on a local podcast that the family had not suspected that Don Jr. was responsible. It was just unthinkable, because he wasn't one of those distant or far-removed cousins who were virtual strangers despite shared bloodlines. Nope, Don Cox Jr. grew up nearby and spent a lot of time at his cousin's home. The three Cox girls basically grew up with him. He was over at their place all the time, both before and after the murder. He went to the same church. He had worked with their dad, John. Felissa said on the Dana and Parks podcast, quote, I don't understand how somebody could be that person and live a normal life and be around the family. He would stop by, stop in to say hi. He worked with my dad at one point. We were all close. But at the same time, they knew that Don Jr. had issues. And in fact, Detective Caldwell told me that when Fawn's family learned of his involvement in her death, they expressed that they had always wondered about it because he was a troubled person. As time passed, the Cox family resigned themselves to accept the blow. Felissa Cox, Fawn's sister, told the media, quote, It's a relief there's closure. The answers aren't always what we were asking for, but there's closure. She also posted on social media, quote, Not sure that I will ever have peace with this. I think resolution is a better word for it. We will never have closure, never have answers, because he is gone and cannot give us that. Over time, I believe things will get a little easier, but I cannot stop here. I'm sure there are other families out there who also need this. For now, it is what it is. I'm a little surprised that my own blood could murder her, but not at all surprised that he was able to rape her. Don Cox Jr. being the killer answered one question, how the killer was so familiar with the house and knew that Fawn would be in her room alone that night. We can only wonder what Don Jr.'s motives were when he climbed up onto the roof outside her window. Did he go there intending to rape and murder her, or just steal the Nintendo and the stereo? What happened when Fawn woke up and found her cousin in her bedroom? Did John Jr. strangle her just to silence her? Don Cox's sister, who was also Fawn's first cousin, posted on social media that her DNA helped in this case. It's not clear what exactly happened, but it sounds like she willingly gave a sample to help find the killer of Fawn, whom she called Precious. The sister, who I'm not naming, said, quote, Now our Precious Fawn can R.I.P., I'm here to tell everyone that my DNA helped with this case, and I can tell you that my brother did this crime. It's not the side I ever knew, but to find out the truth of what happened to my cousin Fawn makes him a monster. 
We can only imagine how devastating this information must have been for the entire extended Cox family. One thing that's not really clear is how this crime wasn't solved earlier. For one thing, Don Cox Jr. was out on probation when Fawn was killed. His family said that given his record, they were not completely shocked by the news, although they had a hard time wrapping their heads around his duplicity. But also, Don Cox Jr. shared a close familial connection with John, Fawn's dad, his uncle. Captain Caldwell told me that he believed that John's DNA was tested and he was eliminated. But it's surprising that the similarities between John's DNA and the killer's weren't noted. Or perhaps the similarities were too general as it was years ago before DNA technology was as advanced as it is now. Captain Ben Caldwell, who served as supervisor of the Missing Persons Cold Case Division of the KCPD until his recent promotion to captain, said of this case, quote, It rattled detectives and officers who worked it for decades. He told me in an email, quote, Every homicide is tragic as the victim was someone's loved one. Lives change in a moment's notice and there is no return to normalcy. This one was especially tragic as Fawn did not put herself in a position to cause her death. She did nothing wrong. She was young and innocent, and Don Cox Jr. took her life in cold blood. He then continued his betrayal to the family by existing in their lives and hiding the truth from her family. Fawn's is the first murder solved by the Kansas City Police Department using advanced genetic genealogy techniques. After 31 years, Fawn Cox's case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Many thanks go out to Captain Dan Caldwell of the Kansas City Police Department for speaking with me about this case. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm now going to play for you two trailers for podcasts I think you'll really like, Corpus Delecti and Mugshot. Movies inspired by real crimes, cruise ship deaths and disappearances, crimes that shape the course of history, and crimes involving families. These are just a few of the series you can find on Corpus Delicti. Corpus Delicti is a weekly true crime podcast that takes a series approach, spending several weeks at a time discussing crime within a certain topic. Hosted by two Southern Bells, we bring you compelling stories with a hint of Southern charm. Sometimes the stories will make you cry. Sometimes you might even laugh, but they're stories you won't want to miss. Find Corpus Delicti on your favorite podcast app by searching for C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I and join us every Tuesday. Hope to see you then. You've heard the haunting stories about murders across the world. But true crime isn't just murder. It's also the spies, burglars, conmen, and traffickers. It affects the victims of fraudsters, arsonists, and stalkers every single day. Join me, Lindsay, the host of Mugshot Podcast, as I bring you the stories of mayhem without the murder, the crimes you didn't even know you needed to hear. Find Mugshot on your favorite podcatcher like Apple Podcasts, Google, or Stitcher, and on all social media outlets at the handle at MugshotPod. But until then, stay out of trouble. Or you may find yourself pictured in your very own mugshot. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Betancourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. 
or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter and on Facebook at DNA ID podcast. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.